Would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with me this morning? Ephesians chapter 4. We saw in the first part of Ephesians 4 that we have a responsibility to maintain the unity that the Spirit has set up within the body of Christ. Uh, we were called, now moving from the doctrinal section, verses one or chapters 1-3, through three, to the practical section, section of the book, chapters 4 through 6, to live a life worthy of our calling. And part of that includes us preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, verses 2 through 6. And so we recognize that as a church, there ought to be unity. There ought to be uh, a oneness among us. But while there is a unity and there should be a unity, there is also great diversity And that's because Christ has given each member of the church various gifts. And these gifts are to be used to strengthen the body. And so that uh, as we are united with our various gifts contributing to the needs of the body, we are helping the body grow. We are maturing the body as a whole. And so that's what we're going to, to see this morning. The genuine spiritual growth is a gift from God. It is a gift from God that He provides for His church. Let me read our passage of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. This is the Word of God. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Now this expression, He ascended, what does it mean except that He also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is Himself also He who ascended far above all the heavens, so that He might fill all things. And He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Genuine spiritual growth that happens within a body of believers is a gift from God. Christ gives these gifts to the church. Verses 7 through 10 tell us that. There's specifically, there are specifically some gifts that are given to the church by Christ to help shape it, to help perfect it, okay? Mature it. That's the idea. And so in verse 7, we see this contrast between, first, the unity that we were talking about, this contrast between the unity and the diversity. Actually, that they work together in a way. Look at verse 7. 
So after he talked about unity, verses 1 through 6, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He now talks, uh, he now moves from unity to the diversity that there is within our body. And this grace that is given in verse 7 is a measure of Christ's gift. Now, what is this grace that is given? Is this something that happens at salvation, that Christ gives the gift of salvation to individuals within the church? Is that what he's talking about? Well, I think this will be answered as we unpack the passage that we have before us. So before I do that, before we answer that question, what this gift of grace is, we want to see the authority that Christ has to give this gift in verses 8-10. through Christ has the authority to give this grace to the church. Paul appeals in verse 8 to an Old Testament text of Scripture to show the authority that Christ has. How do I know that? Well, if you look at verse 8, you notice that after, the, after therefore it says, it's all in capital letters. And whenever you see that in, your, in the text of your Bible, that means that it's referring to an Old Testament text of Scripture. And if you want to know what text of Scripture that is, you just look at the margin of your Bible under chapter 4, verse 8, and you'll see what reference that comes from in the Old Testament. Here it comes, comes from Psalm 68, 18. The, we're not going to turn there, but Psalm 68 is what is known as a song of ascent. It's a song of ascent. That is, it would be sung following the victory that they had, they would have in battle. And if you know anything about the, the geography, the topography of Jerusalem, you know that Jerusalem is set up on a hill a few thousand feet above sea level. And so in order to get to Jerusalem you would always go up to Jerusalem, and so that's why they call it a song of ascent. You would always be ascending to it. So they're coming back from battle, having won, and they're singing this song of victory on the way up to Jerusalem. Think about all the spoils that they have won from the war and bringing back the former captives. Look at the verse, verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, in the context of Psalm 68, the psalmist David there is talking about the the captives that they had won in their specific war. But Jesus, or Paul's using it here to refer to Jesus, isn't he? He's referring to Jesus that he has won a victory, and it's as if as he's going on his ascent, all of his people are in praise to him. And so we have to ask the question: If this is applied to Jesus? Okay, because in verse 7, we know it's applied to Jesus because verse 7 talks about the measure of Christ's gift and then he applies it using verse 8 according to the gift at the end of the verse that he gives to men. So what victory has Christ won? I mean, last time I checked, this world was still corrupt. Am I right? I mean, last time I checked, I have not been fully redeemed. Sin is still very much alive within me. So we have to ask, where is the victory? Because Paul is applying this psalm to Christ's victory over something, and we have to ask, what? And I think you know the answer if you have been a Christian for a long time. You know that the answer is death and sin. And he has won the victory over death and sin, and he has released these captives, these people who were formerly captive, he has released them. Notice in verse 8 it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. 
And these captives are those who had been enslaved to sin and death. But Jesus, through the power of His resurrection, proved that He had power over death. This is what we celebrate this week. Jesus' power over death. And specifically, the, the death that we had, that we were experiencing spiritually. We were spiritually dead, Ephesians chapter 2. And we also have died, we, we have seen Jesus' victory over sin, that is, the power of sin. We once were held captive to sin, but Jesus now is leading us out, leading us former captives. And now uh, this former group of captives are ascending on high, so to speak. Um, and then the last part of the verse, verse 8, He gave gifts to men. One of the other things that would happen following a victory in Israel is that people would bring gifts to the king and as a result of freeing their people from the oppression that they had been facing. And so Paul here uses that same imagery, but instead of people bringing the gifts to the king, notice what's happening. And he, the king, Jesus, gave gifts to men. It's a little bit different. He's using the same imagery that there are gifts being given, but he's switching the source of the gifts to show that Christ the King is the one who is given the gift, who is giving the gifts to us. He's given us specific gifts. Well, what kind of gifts have, has He given us? What is this grace in verse 7 that was given to us, the church? What is this gift? What are these gifts? Well, Paul explains uh, the fulfillment of this psalm in verses 9 and 10. And he shows the authority that Jesus has to give these gifts. We're going to have to wait till verse 11 to find out what the gifts are. In verse 8, he told us that his ascension implies that he, uh, or we see the ascension in verse 8, when he ascended on high. But in verse 9, he tells us that that ascension assumes something else. If Christ ascended, then that implies that he must have what? Descended. Look at verse 9. Now this expression, He ascended, what does it mean except that He also had descended? And He de descended to the lower parts of the earth. Now what is Paul talking about? That Jesus descended to the lower parts of the earth? Did He descend all the way to hell? Is that what this text is saying? Well, I think our understanding of this phrase at the end of verse 9, He descended into the lower parts of the earth depends on the meaning of the word of. And uh, you probably don't think about this very much, but the word of actually has five basic uses, usages. uses. All right, first, it could refer to distance. For example, I could say that there is a restaurant within a mile of our church. Okay, so we're talking about distance when we use the word of there. Or I could talk about source. I could use the word of to refer to source. He is a child of ours. Okay, so we are the source of Him in a sense, right? Or we could use it to refer to cause. I am dying of cancer. Okay, we, we, if someone were to say that, I am dying of cancer. It's, I am dying because of cancer, right? And then fourthly, it could refer to substance. Like we talk about the book of Psalms, we're talking about the book that contains Psalms. The book that has psalms in it. But the fifth usage is the one that I think is, Paul is using here in verse 10. And that is the word meaning identity. 
we use this when we talk about a city, like the city of Detroit. We don't mean when we say the city of Detroit that there's a little city within Detroit proper. We're not talking about that. We're actually talking about the city which is Detroit. That is identity. The city which is Detroit. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. He's using the word of to refer to identity at the end of verse 10. Verse 9, excuse me. That Christ descended into the lower parts which is the earth. Which is the earth. So we don't have Christ going down to hell in some way releasing us from hell. It doesn't make sense, right? We weren't in hell. Christ didn't release captives from hell. He released us from the earth. See, Christ ransomed us from the lower parts, which is the earth. He released us from the earth. And so the point of all this is to show Christ's great love for us. In order for us to see in all of its beauty Christ's exaltation, His ascension, we need to understand that He first descended to our level. He descended to the lower parts of the earth because And this is what gives him the authority. Verse 10. He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. The one who is leading us in triumph is not disconnected from our lives, but rather he has come down and become one of us, a human, and has died in our place. If Christ has ascended to the highest place of authority in all of the universe, and He did by defeating death and sin, then does He not have the right to lead His church as He wants? If He is the ruler, the rightful ruler over all things in all the universe, does He not have the right to rule us as He pleases and to dispense gifts as He pleases. And why does He do this? Look at the end of verse 10. So that He might fill all things. So that He might fill all things. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 28. I'm sorry. Chapter 1, verse 18. How does Christ fill all things? How do we... How are we filled up with Christ in all things? Here's a great prayer by the Apostle Paul, that one that I suggested that we ought to model in our own prayers for one another. And this will help explain to us how Christ fills up all things. Chapter 1, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul speaking to believers. So that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. You see, Christ is already omnipresent. 
He already does fill up all things in one sense, doesn't He? He's everywhere at one time because He is God. And He ought to be recognized by the world as a universal authority, but He is not. People in our world reject Him as the universal authority. And so here's how Christ fills Himself up in all things. He gives gifts to the churches. He plants churches around the world so that they can see that Christ is in control of that church. And they become a radiant, beautiful representation of Christ's glory. So while, Christ, while the Spirit has united us together into one body, verses 1-6, through six, you can turn back to chapter 4. Christ has also gifted us with these special gifts of grace that He has dispensed upon us. And as our authority, He has, he has poured it out according to the measure that He has pleased. Well, how has He gifted us? Verses 11-13 through 13 tells us specifically how Christ has gifted the church. And the answer is, with spiritual leaders who are leading the congregations to spiritual maturity. The primary way in which Christ has gifted us with regard to the church is with spiritual leaders who are leading us to maturity. And that's what verses 11-13 through 13 is all, are all about. Verse 11, And He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints and so on. We'll get to what, that, what their responsibility is. But first we need to see the type of leaders. And there are three. There are three primary types of leaders. First, there are the founders. What I'm going to call the founders. You think of them like Christopher Columbus, the man who discovered the United States. These are the apostles and the prophets. They were responsible for laying the foundation of the church. They were the, the, responsible for this kind of discovery phase of the church. And they did this by preaching the gospel, by speaking on behalf of God, establishing local churches, writing Scripture. This is the apostles and prophets. And their offices, Okay, when I talk about prophets, I'm talking about New Testament prophets, like Paul has been using that word throughout this letter. New Testament prophets who are responsible for establishing the church. Yes, the Old Testament prophets had a responsibility, and they laid a different kind of foundation, but specifically Paul's talking about the foundation of the church. So he's talking about New Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. But both of these offices have been done away with. They were there to lay the foundation and they moved out of the way by dying, in effect. Okay, so first we have these founders. The second type of leader that Christ has gifted the church with is this next group, and that is the planters or the explorers. That is the evangelists. It says, He gave us some as apostles, some as prophets. That was I put those two together. And then the, the third one is same, uh, some as evangelists. Now, evangelist in the Scripture is not what we think of one today. He was not a person who simply set up meetings all over the globe to tell people about Jesus and then move on to another city. An evangelist in the Scripture was probably more like an itinerant missionary, like the Apostle Paul. Paul would be, yes, he was an apostle, but he acted as an evangelist. 
His responsibility was not to go around and set up the church and keep them established, stay at that church for a really long time. He would work till it got to a place of being established and then move on, wouldn't he? And pass it off to Timothy or Titus or some of these other men whom he had trained. I think of Sean Alexander as an evangelist. Paul and I got the opportunity to meet him when we were down in Brazil and, and have dinner with him and his wife Donna. Sean Alexander was on a team with Mike Jewell for years, a church planting team. And uh, Sean would go about, find the strategic locations within a city, and he would announce the truth of the gospel to people who hadn't heard before. And he would see people saved, and the church would start to, to uh, take on an infant form. Then his brother, Ed Alexander, who's also down there, he's now leading a college down there, a Christian college. Ed would come along, along with Mike Jewell, and they would come and they would be the ones who would establish it even further. They would work to make sure that leaders were set up within the church and then they would pass it on to a person who would handle or, or take over the church long term. That is a, a national uh, leader there, a pastor. While they were doing that, Ed and, and, and Mike Jewell were doing this, Sean would move on to another location. And he would spend some time there in a strategic location to spread the gospel, tell them about Christ. This is what the Scriptures know as an evangelist, what Sean was doing. And so these men are responsible and helpful even in our day. They haven't, this hasn't gone away. We need itinerant missionaries, people who set up and establish works in infantile form and then pass it on to qualified leaders who can take it the rest of the way. So the way that Christ has gifted the church is first, this first type of leader is a founder, the apostles and prophets, and then the, the people who lay the foundation. And the planters, the one who are actually getting in there and, and uh, planting the seed a little bit farther. And then finally you have the cultivators or the governors, and that is this last category. Notice how Paul sets this category apart, some as pastors and teachers. Now, we might want to break that down into two categories and say that Christ has given some as pastors and some as teachers, but not, that's not what the text says. If you look at the construction of the whole verse, some as apostles, category one, some as prophets, okay, that's category 1A, I would say, some as evangelists, and then some as pastors slash teachers. Christ has gifted the church with those who have a responsibility to pastor, to shepherd, and to teach. The idea of, of a pastor or teacher has the idea of leading properly, of further establishing uh, a church, of further cultivating growth. The word pastor can also be translated as shepherd as it is in Acts chapter 20. He has a guiding function. And if you think about it, the office of pastor within a local church is unique to all other organizations. It is unique to all other organizations. Now, let me be clear. Part of the responsibility of the pastor is to manage people. And we need Pastors who can manage things well. First Timothy 3, he has to be a manager of his own house well. So if he can't do that, how can he manage the church of God? But when I say that the pastor is unique to the church and in that it's unlike any other organization, I mean that the pastor is much more than a manager, isn't he? 
You could take the best manager of people in American business and he would not be equipped to minister among Christ's body. Alan Mullally, the president of Ford Motor Company, is a man for whom I have great respect because of his ability to ingeniously reform companies. But if you were to put him, I assume he's not a Christian, if you were to put him in the smallest Bible-believing church in our country, he would not be adequate to minister because he's not gifted to know the Scriptures, know the significance of the Scriptures, or to teach them. In other words, the reason that pastors are so unique, the reason that pastors pastor and they do it well has a direct connection with their ability to understand and to dispense the meaning of the Scriptures. And the church of Jesus Christ seems to be, in our day, in many ways, in a troubled state. And part of the reason for that is because we as congregations have unwisely hired good managers instead of good Bible expositors, good pastors. And you go to the, the latest mega church uh, around and you'll find that they have lots of men who are in a leadership position who manage well. They know how to manage people. They know how to motivate people. But they're not gifted in understanding the Scriptures. And what our churches need is not an eloquent person who can motivate people. We don't need a guy who has even two or three years worth of sermons that work in one place and then he moves on to another place and use them all over again. We need pastors who are gifted in understanding the Word of God and who are able to teach in such a way that people can understand it and can respond to it as if God were speaking Himself. This is what our church needs. We need pastors who set their minds not to climbing the corporate ladder. And I'll just use this church to put on my resume so that I can make it to another church that's a little bigger. We need pastors who are staying in one place for a long time who are constantly exposing the Scriptures to the people of God so that they can be fed with real food and so they can see what God wants, not what they want. And so Christ has gifted churches with qualified people who can do this, who can take the Word of God and present it in such a way so that it becomes nourishment for Christians who need it. Think of these offices in progressions. In progression, the church at its inception needed what? It needed the apostles and prophets, right? But then after they can move out of the way, now all we need are these next two offices, evangelists, itinerant missionaries, people who can establish the work initially, and then also men who are going to stick around for a long time and do the work of ministry. Certainly, Christ has gifted our church and churches in general with more than just these leaders. But here's the one that Paul pulls out and sets up uh, and, and, and puts on, a, on, on display for the church. Certainly, the church has been gifted with deacons. We believe that the deacons of our church are a gift from God. And He has gifted the church with every member, as we're going to see in verses 15 and 16. But Paul's point is that these specific gifts, these leaders were given to the church to teach and preach the Gospel and to operate in such a way to 
be Christ's representative head on the earth. Now, we need to move quickly to the responsibilities of leaders here in verse 12. The responsibility of leaders. We've seen the type of leaders, now the responsibility for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. In order to understand the responsibility of leaders, we need to see the structure of this verse. I have always understood this verse, and I've preached it, that, that this is the, par- the pastor's job is to equip the, the members of the church to do the work of the ministry. But now that I've studied this more carefully, I believe that I understood this passage wrongly. And instead, and part of my reasoning is because I didn't understand the structure of the verse in verse 12, and I wrongly understood the word equipping. So let me just show you the structure of the verse first. Well, you need to see that there are three responsibilities, not one responsibility for the pastor. Okay, the way that I always understood it was for the equipping of the saints. That is his responsibility, and that leads to these other responsibilities so that the church is, um, is uh, doing the work of service and so that the church is being built up. Instead, it should be three responsibilities because of the parallelism in the verse. Look at the verse again, verse 12. For the equipping of the saints. That's one responsibility. The second responsibility for the pastor is for the work of service. And then the third responsibility is to or for the building up of the body of Christ. The pastor's responsibility is to equip the saints. He is to do the work of service and to build up the body of Christ. Now, Part of the reasoning I said was because of my understanding of the word equip. And now that I've studied it a little more carefully, I understand that equipping is probably not the best translation. It's only used one time in the New Testament in its Greek form, but its cognate is used in other places within the New Testament to refer to perfecting or gathering. How many of you have a translation that says perfecting the saints? Okay, the King James Version has perfecting the saints. And I think they got it right. The idea is not that, that you are going to come to a place where you ultimately make it to perfection, but that you are being perfected. You are being matured. That's the idea here. And so the job of the pastor is to help mature people, to help gather them, unite them, order them into visible communion with one another and cooperation to do the things of God. So his first responsibility is to mature Christians, to help cultivate maturity in Christians. The second one is doing the ministry. It's not that the members are supposed to do all the work of the ministry. It is that the pastor has to do his ministry. And what is his ministry? Well, his ministry is, as we see in Acts chapter 6, to devote himself to prayer and preaching the Word. So if the service of an electrician is electricity and the service of a carpenter is carpentry, then the service of a pastor is preaching. Okay, It's not that he needs to do everything in the church, but that he needs to be doing his responsibility of ministering the Word. And then thirdly, to edify the body of Christ. Edify the body of Christ. And the way that... Christians are matured. The way that the pastor does his work, the way that the body of Christ is edified, all happens through the ministry of the Word of God. This is my most important responsibility. That Christ is uniting His body together 
through the diversity of our gifts, the gifts that you have recognized that I have for your sake is to preach the Word. And that's my main responsibility. You have different gifts. And so your responsibility is to fulfill those, use those gifts for the sake of the body. Notice the goal in verse 13. The goal of these leaders, until we all, that is all of us as a church, attain to the unity of the faith, back to the first part of the chapter, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. You see that idea of perfecting or maturing comes up again there in verse 13. They were all supposed to get to a place where we are being filled up with Christ. You are reaching your highest potential as a Christian. That's my responsibility to help cultivate that in you. This is something that's called progressive sanctification. That you you know that from the time you were saved, you did not automatically come to a place of spiritual maturity, did you? And you know that even now, you are not at a place of full maturity. But that you still have room to grow, as I do. And so we're all moving towards this goal of being more and more matured. Perhaps an illustration would be helpful. As a six-year-old child, we may, be, we may have been mature for our age, right? We may have uh, done all that we were expected to do as a six-year-old. We may have been as mature as we should have been as a six-year-old, but were we all that we could be as a human, as a six-year-old? We still had a lot to learn, didn't we? We still hadn't learned how to drive. We still hadn't learned how to keep our mouth shut when we needed to keep our mouth shut and when to talk when we were supposed to talk. We didn't learn how to think carefully. But I'm telling you that, that this, this is true of Christians as well. That, that we may be all that we should be for how long we have been a Christian, but we're not all that we can be or all that we, we would be if we allowed Christ to continue to change us. We have a lot to learn. We need to learn how to stand up in trials. We need to learn how to, to speak when we ought to speak and when to hold our tongue when we ought to hold our tongue. We need to learn better to know, how, to know God's Word. Isn't that what the text says? Look at the end of verse 13. So that we would all reach the place of a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. See, that maturity takes time and work. And one of the gifts that God has given to churches is pastors who are equipped to be able to expose the Scriptures and speak on behalf of God and be able to cultivate spiritual growth and maturity. The look of, of spiritual maturity is found in verses 14 through 16. The look of spiritual maturity. And that is mutual edification. When the church is properly maturing and growing, it will not look like a bunch of Christians who are out on islands doing their own thing, growing individually, but rather as a group growing together, helping out one another, contributing to the needs of one another. Notice verse 14, as a result of Christ giving us these gifts, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Do you ever 
feel that way? Like you're being tossed about. You hear something from one person. Sounds like it's truth. And then you hear from another. and Oh, actually, that sounds like truth. And you feel like you're being bounced back and forth. What is truth? One of the gifts that Christ has given to the church is, yes, pastors, but also one another to be able to speak the truth to one another in love. Look at verse 15. Instead of being bounced back and forth, instead we are speaking the truth to one another in love and we are growing up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Here's what spiritual maturity looks like. It looks like every single member of our church speaking truth to one another in a loving way. See, immature people don't do this. They don't speak the truth in love. They do maybe one or the other, but they don't do both. They may speak the truth, but they do it in a very harsh way. They beat it over the person's head, and that is an immature thing to do. But as, as maturing Christians, we are speaking the truth to one another in a loving way. Other immature Christians just love people. Okay? hope you understand I'm, I'm being facetious with that the way I'm using that because true love is not uh, ignoring the truth. They, they're all squishy and adoring to people and ignoring the truth. We're going to ignore all the sin that's going on. But here's what Paul is saying. If we're going to grow up into all aspects into our head who is Christ, then we need to learn to speak to one another both in a truthful way and in a loving way. And aren't you thankful for people in your life who have done that, who have modeled truth speaking to you in a loving way? Is there any more more helpful way for you to see your sin than for someone who came to you in love and spoke the truth to you? This is what we ought to be doing with one another. And as we're doing this, we need to recognize, verse 16, that all of this maturity is sourced in Christ. Verse 16, from whom, that is Christ, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Don't be confused about my role as your pastor. I cannot force you to become spiritually mature. But God has gifted me, I believe, and and with your uh, choosing of me, I believe that you also recognize that I've been gifted to cultivate spiritual maturity within you. But I can't make you spiritually mature. No other member of the church can make you spiritually mature. But we can cultivate it in one another, can't we? We can cultivate spiritual maturity in one another. And this is part of what it means to live as a body. It means contributing, using the gifts that we have to help the needs of others. I'm not talking about financial gifts. I'm talking about spiritual gifts. How has Christ gifted you? Are you a hospitable person? Are you a person who prays? Are you an encourager? Obviously, we all need to be doing that, but you recognize that Christ has gifted us especially in some of those areas, hasn't He? And how are you using that to help the body? It's not for your benefit, the gifts that you have. And so the gifts that we have are used by Christ to shape the body, to help mold it into a more mature body. Let me leave you with five points of application. Number one, 
Our best acts of service come from God. Our best acts of service come, come from God. All that we do on behalf of Christ is a gift from Christ. It's a grace given to us. Don Carson says it this way, that is how we think of ourselves. We, we ought to think of ourselves as, verse 7 says, as Christ's captives. No longer are we captive to sin, but we are Christ's captives captured from the race of rebellious image bearers and now poured out as gifts to men that invest, and that invests all our service with unimaginable dignity. When we recognize our responsibility that we are poured out to the church as gifts to them, we'd be foolish to hold ourselves back from serving the church. Number two, the goal the goal is to grow the church. The goal is to grow the church. And I'm not talking about numbers. I'm talking about spiritually. Nowhere in this letter nor in any of Paul's letters does Paul say, I want to see your churches full to the brim. He wants to see people, yes, glorifying God. Those who are of the chosen race, like we sang. But ultimately, he, what he wants to see is with the ones who have been entrusted to our care, we want to see them mature. Are we there yet? Our goal is to grow the church in maturity. Number three, thank God for good leaders. Have you had pastors in your Christian life who have helped you move from one level of spiritual maturity to the next? And thank God for them. Thank God that God had used men in your life to shape you, to help mold you, to make you more mature spiritually. Number four, formally submit yourself to the authority of the church. Submit yourself to the, to the authority of the church. There's not one time in the New Testament since the establishment of the local church in Acts 2 that any true believer did not get baptized and get added to a church. I said that in a negative way, so let me say it in a positive way. Since the institution of the local church, every believer in the New Testament was baptized and joined a church. The way that the New Testament talks about it is that they were baptized and they were added to the church, the number of the church. And if you're not a member of this church or any other church, then you are a free agent. You submit to no authority. No one takes responsibility for your soul. Look up Hebrews 13, 17 sometime and look at, at how important it is to be underneath the leadership of a church because they watch out for your souls. And if you're not a member of this church or another, then you're not fulfilling your responsibilities to minister to other people and to use your gifts. You're like a football player who says, yeah, I'm in the NFL. And someone says, well, what team are you on? Well, I'm not on a team right now. Well, then you're not in the NFL. You know, I, I hang out at the Washington Redskins Stadium, though. But you're not a member of the team. You're not, in the, you're not in the National Football League. You have to become part of the organization. Here's what I'm telling you. If you're a Christian, you should not be a free agent. You need to be a part of a church that loves and worships God so that you can have leaders who care for your soul, so that you can use your gifts to minister to other people and that they can do it to you, so that you can hold other people accountable 
and so that they can hold you accountable. Number five, recognize your role. Recognize your role within the church of Jesus Christ. Maybe you are extremely gifted spiritually and you feel like when you come to church, you are inundated with a bunch of leeches. People who just suck the energy, the time, spiritually, emotionally, or drained when, you're done, when you come away from church and you say, that's not for me. Is that the way we ought to look at the church? If you look at the church that way, then you are looking at it selfishly. If God has gifted you in a special way and you come away feeling drained, then praise God that He has used you to shape those other people. If God has gifted you with spiritual gifts to use for the sake of the body, they're not for yourself. They're gifts that are given to the church. Spiritual gifts that are in you need to be used for the church. It would be like me telling my son, here's some money, I want you to spend it on things that are needful for our house. And instead of doing that, he uses it to save up to move out or to start his own retirement fund or to buy a bike. See, we have been gifted with certain gifts and if we're not using them for the sake of the body, if we're not being spent for the sake of Christ, then shame on us. Christ has gifted us to use, to, to use our gifts and to be used by other people for the sake of spiritual maturity. How different would our church be if you individually responded to every person with truth in a loving way, with using your spiritual gift? The best way that you can get involved in our church is not to get your name on some program that we have, it's not to, to, to necessarily you know, be out there in front of people, but it is to speak the truth to one another in love. Use your spiritual gift to help shape and cultivate spiritual growth within this body. Wouldn't our church be a great place if every one of us committed to do that? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the people You have used to shape us thankful for the gifts that You have given to this church to help mold us and to shape us into spiritual maturity. May we not buy into the world's model of uh, simply growing in a numeric way. Certainly we want to see that. We want to see more people who have been called by You fill up this place and praise Your name. We hate to see people who just spend their Sundays and their weeks not praising You so we want to see more people, but, but ultimately we can't control that. And if we make that our primary goal, we will compromise the truth of Scripture in order to get more people. Instead, we want to measure our success at this church with faithfulness to Your Word. And so we commit ourselves to it. We commit our bodies and ourselves, our minds to You. Use us in whatever way You please. Use us to shape the people within this church, to, to influence them for spiritual good. Thank You for the godly people within this congregation who have loved and helped shape me. I pray that You would help me to, to be worthy of the calling that You have called me to and, and that You would cause us all to do the same so that we would be unifying 
be, we would be a part of unifying growth in this body. And when we do, we know that it will bring great praise to You. We certainly seek to bring praise to You, but, but we could do it even better. We could grow even more as a church. And so help us, we pray. Give us wisdom in this, the circumstances of life. And help us to gladly give ourselves for the sake of Jesus Christ who gave all that He had for us. We pray in Jesus' name.